Right, so they made a book trailer of um, Double Cross, and so what I'm going to do now is just read a bit from this, and then, let, as I said, let's open it up for questions. Can I just ask, how many people here have actually read Noughts and Crosses? Has anyone read Noughts and Crosses? Okay, quite a few. Has anyone read this one? Okay, right, well, for the ones who have already read it, do bear with me, but um, I'm just going to read two, a couple of short extracts from it. I've reached the time where I'm going like this to read books as well, so do bear with me. Now, the bit I'm going to read here is where um, Callie actually gets shot. Right, there we go. And this is um, Toby's chapter. Okay, Toby, no teasing, no jokes, no evasions, just the truth. How do you feel about me? I open my mouth to tell her straight, only to snap it shut again. I wanted to tell her, I, I really did, but certain words were very hard to retract. Once they were out, they took on a life of their own, and if I said them, they might turn around and take a chunk out of my butt. Callie was watching me intently. This is ridiculous, you're being really stupid, I said at last. Thanks, Callie said, not attempting to mask the hurt in her voice. That confirms what I thought. Callie, I, forget it, Toby. I was drowning, you threw me a lifeline, now it's over. Callie shrugged. I was stupid to hope it meant any more to you than that. Hey, you guys, Dan yelled from several metres away. Look, we can't discuss this here, I told Callie. Once Dan gives me my money, we can go for a meal and talk about it, OK? Nothing to talk about, Callie said coldly. Why did I suddenly feel like I was clinging onto our relationship by my fingertips? Probably because that's exactly what I was doing. It was a choice between yanking open my chest and showing Callie my heart with all the risks that involved or losing her anyway. Callie, we need to talk, I said. Talk or listen to you insult me some more. Talk. Callie didn't reply. I'm sorry I called you stupid, I said, exasperated. Can we please just go somewhere and talk, please? Callie didn't answer. Instead, she turned to face Dan. I did the same, feeling like I was drowning. Dan approached us, a big beaming smile on his face. What is the point of having a flash watch if you can't get anywhere on time? I snapped when he got close enough. I'm here now, aren't I? Dan couldn't see the problem. Hi, Callie. You're looking fine, as always. Thanks, Dan. I mean it. You look really fit, he said, moving closer to her. Annoyance began to bubble inside me like a saucepan of water heating on a cooker. Callie, I can take you places and buy you things that Toby hasn't even dreamed about. Dan's smile was an oil slick on his face as he regarded her. To Toby's my mate and all, but when are you going to dump the loser and go out with me? Callie gave me a filthy look, then turned to Dan like she was seriously considering his offer. You even think about making a move on Callie and I'll break every bone in your body, I told Dan straight. Dan and Callie stared at me. Then they both burst out laughing. What was so damn funny? Someone's got it bad, Dan said. Callie looked at me, a strange light twinkling in her eyes. All the ice in her expression had melted. I turned away from her so she couldn't get the full effect of the blush cooking my face. Now you see, Toby, she said softly, that's all you had to say. I don't know what you mean, I mumbled, deciding to ignore them both until they stopped laughing at me. Beyond the football pitch, across the grass, a black WMW pulled up. If I hadn't known any better, I would have sworn it was Macaulay's car. But what would Macaulay be doing at the wasteland on a Saturday afternoon? Two suited nought men I'd never seen before got out and ambled across the grass towards the football pitch as if they didn't have a care in the world. So, so Callie, when did you first manage to wrap my friend around your little finger? Dan asked, holding an imaginary microphone to her face. 
Well, Dan, it all started when I was seven years old, Callie squeaked. Dan had his back to the two men who were slowly but surely heading in our direction. Something wasn't right. I looked around. A white saloon car was parked on the opposite side of the pitch. Two men got out of the car. Two crosses. They also started heading towards the football pitch. I turned back to the two nought men walking towards us. They were talking to each other, but the prickling on the back of my neck was getting worse. The two noughts were only a few metres away now. They reached beneath their jackets, and then all hell was let loose. Get down, I yelled, but my words came too late. And this is Callie's chapter. Several loud bangs sounded, like lots of cars backfiring in quick succession. Each noise made me jump. I looked around. The whole world reduced speed to ultra-slow motion. Every colour, every sensation was heightened, except, except all I could hear was my heart strumming. The world was slow. My heartbeat was fast. Strange combination. All around us, people scattered like points on a compass. I could see their mouths move, watch their frantic expressions. But still, the only sound was my own heartbeat, growing ever faster. It was like a drum inside me beating its own time. What on earth was going on? I looked around, men with guns. Men with guns on either side of the pitch, shooting at each other. And all of us in the middle. Get down, Kelly, Callie, drop down, get down now! Two crossmen had their guns drawn and were shooting past us in the direction of the road behind us. I turned just in time to see Macaulay sitting in the back of his car, the back window all the way down. Flashes flared from inside the car. Bullets? Bullets. My head turned this way and that. Toby was shouting at me, his mouth moving, oh, so slowly, too slowly to make out the words. But he was trying to tell me something important, something urgent. That much was evident in his eyes. And he was pulling at me. Stop pulling at me. Dan was already on the ground. Get down, Callie! From inside his car, Macaulay fired his gun. And his gun was pointing straight at us. The gun jerked in Macaulay's hand. He'd fired, and again. I didn't have time to warn Toby or push him out of the way. I stepped in front of him. Toby's chapter. God's sake, Callie, get down! I hit the floor trying to pull Callie with me, but she stood stock still in front of us, in, in front of me, staring across the park. I scrambled in front of her, pulling harder at her arm. Furious, I looked up at her, wondering why the hell she wasn't moving. God's sake! Bullets were now whizzing around us like mosquitoes around a blood bank. Callie looked down, to, down at me, and that's when my world crashed to an abrupt halt. A dark crimson stain was spreading out over the front of Callie's sky-blue shirt. More gunshots. Something glanced off the side of Callie's head and she toppled, her body falling like a house of playing cards. Callie! I threw my body over hers, trying to protect her from stray bullets. Macaulay's car screeched down the road, burning rubber as it went. The two crossmen who'd made a great show of strolling across the grass towards us were now racing back to their own car. Moments later, they too screeched out of sight. Everyone ran for their lives. Dan, who dived down at me at the sound of the first bullet being fired, picked himself up and bolted. Within moments, there was no one left on the wasteland except me and Callie. I sat up, pulling Callie with me, the crimson stain growing bigger, covering more of Callie's shirt. There was a circular hole on the left-hand side of her shirt, just below her shoulder. Blood ran down the side of her head, from her temple, past her ears. Help us, someone help us, I yelled out. Callie's eyes were closed and her breath left her nose and mouth with a strange rattling sound. 
I looked around at all the closed windows of the flats and houses that surrounded us. Please, someone help! I pulled Callie to me, rocking her back and forth in my arms as we both sat on the ground. Digging into my trouser pocket, I brought out my phone with one hand, laying it on the ground so I could dial the emergency services for an ambulance without letting go of Callie. Callie, hang on, I whispered in her ear. Help will be here soon, just hang on. The clouds separated and sunlight bathed us, so bright I was momentarily blinded. The rattling sound Callie was making suddenly stopped. No. She lay limp in my arms, and her sudden silence was far, far worse. In the distance I could hear the sound of a siren. Someone somewhere must have phoned for help after all. Callie, I whispered. She lay so still, like a broken doll. My hands and clothes were covered with her blood. I hugged her to me, her cheek against mine, rocking her gently back and forth. I've got you, Callie, I've got you. I'll never let you go, never. You and me, babe, against the world. So that's where Callie gets shot. And the last bit I'm going to read, and anyone who reads my books knows that I love my short chapters, um, so this is quite short, is where um, Toby decides he's going to now go and he's going to get, he's going to take Macaulay up on the job offer that Macaulay made to him earlier, and, uh, but he's going to do it so he can get revenge for Callie getting shot. So this is uh, Toby where he's trying to convince Macaulay that he's changed his mind. So you want a job? I seem to remember that you weren't interested, Macaulay continued. I've changed my mind, sir. I need the money. What's changed between now and last week? Reality has set in, I shrugged. Now, why don't I believe you? Macaulay was a study in stillness as he scrutinised me. I opened my mouth to argue, then decided against it. Macaulay was no fool. The worst and last mistake I could make would be to underestimate him. I shrugged again. In your shoes, I wouldn't believe me either, I said. Macaulay sat back and smiled. At last, something we both agree on. I nodded slowly. Fair enough, Mr. Macaulay. I just thought I'd offer my services. I'm sorry to have wasted your time. I turned and headed for the door. How's your girlfriend? What's her name again? Callie Rose? She's not my girlfriend, I replied, still heading for the door. Wait, Macaulay ordered. I turned round to face him. He beckoned me over and pointed to the spot where I'd been standing next to Dan. I walked back to my previous position. I felt like a naughty school kid made to stand in front of the head. No doubt that was just what Macaulay was aiming for. Why do you need the money? he asked. Get out of this place, I replied, out of Meadowview. Macaulay's eyes widened. I'd succeeded in surprising him. To get away from people like me, he asked softly with just the merest hint of a smile. Yes, sir, I replied without hesitation. There was no mistaking the horrified gasp that came from Dan beside me. You don't harbour any dreams of being just like me when you're older? No, sir. Macaulay leaned forward over his desk, his index fingers touching at the tips to form a peak, which he then tapped against his lips. Several seconds passed. You don't like me very much, do you, Toby? No, sir. Dan was staring at me like I'd lost every bit of my mind. But you're willing to take my money? To earn it, sir. Macaulay started to laugh. I like you, Toby Sebastian Durbridge. I said nothing. So what are you prepared to do for me? He asked. Whatever will make me the most money in the shortest amount of time. And why should I trust you? Because I'm loyal, hardworking, I do as I'm told, and I know when to keep my mouth shut. It appears that you do, Macaulay agreed, but loyalty is the most important thing to me. I understand, sir. 
I hope you do, said Macaulay, because if I find out that you, or anyone else who works for me, is abusing my trust, there will be no second chances. I got the message, loud and clear. If you give me a chance, I won't let you down, I replied. Macaulay looked up at Byron, who was still at his side, and nodded. Byron carefully placed his gun on the desk, then sauntered towards us. Trouble. I watched Byron approach, knowing that danger was only a couple of steps away, and counting down. Macaulay hadn't believed a word I'd said, and if I left this place in one whole living piece, it would be a bona fide miracle. Cold sweat prickled my back and my armpits. What was Byron going to do? Kill me where I stood? What did Macaulay expect me to do? Fight? Beg? What? Mr. Macaulay, I can vouch for Toby. He's a good guy, Dan said quickly before Byron reached us. It was a valiant try, but everyone in the room knew that Dan was wasting his breath. I turned to look at Macaulay. If I was going down, it would be facing him like a man. Byron stepped behind Dan and me. I held my breath. But to my surprise, I wasn't Byron's target. Byron grabbed hold of Dan's arms and pulled them back. Dan cried out in surprise and more than a little fear. He struggled to get free, but he was wasting his time. He wasn't going anywhere. A couple of quick yanks on his arm were enough to make him yell out in pain, but it had the desired effect. Dan kept still, while Byron stood directly behind him, still pulling back his arms. I turned back to Macaulay, who was watching me intently. Macaulay pointed to the gun Byron had left on his desk. Pick it up. I moved forward to do as I was told. The stock was warm where Byron had been holding it, and the gun was unexpectedly heavy. I adjusted my grip, keeping my finger well away from the trigger. Do you know what kind of weapon that is? Macaulay asked me. It was an M1911 Series 70 single-action semi-automatic handgun with a single-stacked magazine that took 7.45 calibre ACP bullets, plus one in the chamber. That's if the thing hadn't been modified to take more. It's a gun, sir. You know your stuff, said Macaulay dryly. That particular gun happens to be a classic. I keep telling Byron that he should use a more modern firearm, but that gun is one of his favourites. Why was he telling me this? like I gave a damn which toys Byron liked to play with. That particular gun is loaded with .45 calibre, non-expanding, Teflon-coated ball ammunition, Macaulay told me. I have the bullets made specially for me. I went to lay the thing back on the table. Toby, do something for me, said Macaulay silkily. Point that gun at Dan and shoot him. I must have misheard. Pardon? You heard me. Macaulay picked up his cup of mint tea and started sipping it. The gun sat awkwardly in my hand as I looked from Dan back to Macaulay. Y you, want, you want me to kill your friend? Macaulay's voice was soft and slick as melted butter. Dan stared at Macaulay, horror-stricken. He struggled against, against Byron's python grip in earnest now, but there was no way Byron was letting him go. Well, Toby, said Macaulay. Mr Macaulay, please, Dan pleaded. I work for you. I'm a good worker. You brought a stranger to my house unannounced and uninvited, Macaulay turned to snap at him. Into my house. You never, ever bring anyone here without my permission, Dan. For that alone you need sorting. I'm sorry, Mr Macaulay, I messed up, Dan cried out. Toby's my friend and you offered him a job. I didn't think it would do any harm. You didn't think, full stop. You're a fool, Dan, and that makes you a liability, Macaulay replied. Toby, either shoot him or give me the gun so I can take care of business. Would I be included in his business? Probably. I looked at Dan, who was shaking his head frantically at me. The gun in my hand was so heavy. My dad had taught me all about guns before he left. 
He used to buy all kinds of gun magazines and he'd sit me on his lap and we'd look at the photos and read the specifications together before he took off. But Dad would never have dreamed of having a gun in our house or anywhere near it, not a real one. He had a couple of replicas, but he said it was to study the engineering behind them. The last time he disappeared, Mum put the replicas in the bin. That's when I knew he wasn't coming back. And now I had a real gun in my hand, loaded with real bullets. Slowly, I raised my hand, pointing the gun straight at Dan's head. Toby, no, I'm begging you, don't, please. Dan fought like a wild thing to get out of Byron's grasp, but it was futile. Though his lips were a thin, immovable slash across his face, I could tell Byron was enjoying himself by the gleam in his green eyes. Toby, no! Tears streamed down Dan's face. A dark stain began to spread across the crutch of his light blue jeans. Sorry, Dan. I lowered my gaze, trying to get it together. My arm fell to my side. The gun was heavy, so very heavy. Stretch out my arm, hold the gun steady. If I'm wrong, if I've got this wrong, Take aim, Toby. I raised my arm to aim the gun directly at Dan's heart. Toby, no! Dan screamed out. Legs slightly apart, body braced. I concentrated on just one face and I pulled the trigger. Okay, so I'll leave it there. So, has anyone got any questions for me? Don't be shy, I've got big teeth but I don't bite, I promise. Okay, at the back there. Say that again. Do you enjoy writing your books? I, I love writing. I'm, I'm really lucky because I'm doing what I absolutely love. And when you get to be sort of like, you know, in your 20s or whatever, a lot of people are doing a job because it's a means to an end and they pays the bills. But I'm doing something that I really love doing, so I do enjoy it. But I mean, obviously, because I've, I've written so many different kinds of books, so um, it, it depends on the book I'm writing, because some books, you know, like when I was writing Knife Edge, I, that was, because that's a book of, I, I sort of say, um, Noughts and Crosses is a book about love, and Knife Edge is a book about hate, and Checkmate is a book about hope, and Ch Double Cross is a book about revenge, and redemption, and retribution, and so on, and, I, and when I was writing Knife Edge in particular, because it was kind of, it's, it's some nasty things happening that, and that was kind of chilling to write. So yeah, but I do enjoy writing them. I love my job. So. What in, um, is it on? Yeah, yeah I can hear. You. What inspired the Knots and Crosses series? Um, a number of things, really. I, um, a number of things from my own childhood. Like, um, from the time I was seven, because I love reading in English so much, um, I wanted to be an English teacher. And uh, when I was doing my A-levels, I, I had to go to my careers teacher, and she was the one who wrote the references for the UCA forms. And, um, and she said to me, well, what do you want to do, Mallory? What do you want to do when you leave school? And I said, well, I really want to be an English teacher. I want to go to Goldsmiths College and do an English and drama degree, and then I want to be an English teacher. And she sort of looked at me and she said, well, black people don't become teachers. And she said, why don't you be a secretary instead? And I thought, I don't want to be a secretary. I want to be an English teacher. But she said, and I said, no, I want to be a teacher. And she said, well, I'm sorry. I'm not going to give you a good reference. And she said, I'll tell you what. She said, I'll, I'll write you a reference to go to Polytechnic and you can do business studies. And, you know, and, and I ended up doing business studies, but only for half a term, because I was rushed to hospital to get my appendix out. And then I gave up um, my place at Poly, and I then went to university. I got into Goldsmiths, because oh, by that time I had my A-level results. 
And then I decided to defer entry for a year and then I would um, go to Goldsmith. So I decided to work for a year to so make a bit of money and I started working in a software house and it was the first time I'd even touched a computer and I got hooked. So that's how I ended up in computing. So, uh, but anyway, the, the point is that a number of the things that happened to Callum in Noughts and Crosses, especially at school, are based on true incidents and happened to me. And, um, and there's a number of things I kind of sat on and didn't really talk about or, uh, with anybody and so on. And then by the time I'd written my 49th book, I thought, you know what? I'm really ready to say a few things. And that's how Noughts and Crosses was born. And it was also around the, the time of the Stephen Lawrence case. Uh, for, for those who don't know, it's a, a, a black boy who was killed by these five white boys down very close to where I live. And um, they literally got away with murder. And, um, and it, I was just so angry about that. I thought, I've got to write something. I've got to write something about this whole thing about. And that's why my book, I'd, originally I wasn't quite sure how I was going to do it. And then in my book, I decided that I would make it so that white people were the minority and they were the noughts. And black people were the majority and they were the crosses. And, and, and the noughts are considered sort of nothings and zeros. And the, and the crosses consider themselves closer to God in every way. But I wanted it to be about the relationship between Callum, who's a nought, and Sefi, who's a cross. And, even, and when I got the title, it actually really fitted with what I wanted to say because Noughts and Crosses is that kind of the game that nobody plays past childhood because it's so you know, boring and nobody ever wins it. It kind of just seemed to summon up some... It, it seemed to kind of say what I wanted to say about the book. It's sort of racism being a, something nobody's ever going to win eventually, so you might as well just stop it. And that, that kind of summed up what I wanted to say in the book, and that's how I got the title, at the risk of sounding a bit sort of arty-farty literati. But that, you know, it all kind of seemed to come together when I was doing that one. But it was based on a number of things from my own life, and, and, and you know, in the Stephen Lawrence case was the inspiration for me doing it. Mm -hmm. What do your family think of the books? Um, actually, they, they've all read them, and they, they love them. It's funny, though, because, um, like I was just saying to people that my, my sister, when she read um, Knife Edge, and for those of you who've read it, you know it kind of ends on a bit of a cliffhanger, and she read it, and she phoned me up, and, oh, my God, she cussed me down the phone. And it's, what the hell do you think you're doing? And how can you just finish a book like this? And when's the, when's the next one coming out? And I said, I'm working on it now. It's called Checkmate and I'm working on it. And she said, well, when's that going to come out? And I said, in about a year's time. And she went, oh my God, how can you just leave a book like this? And she was so angry with me. So, um, you know, so, it was, so you know, they kind of, but it was really good because they kind of get a response. But, um, and, you know, my hubby is kind of great about it because he reads all my stuff as well, while, you know, before anybody else does. And, um, and so he was always really supportive and so on. But again, you know, some things like, in a way, my relationship with my hubby, especially before we got married, was also another inspiration for Noughts and Crosses because my hubby was, is, is white Scottish. He was born in Edinburgh. And, um, and so I kind of know Edinburgh quite well. And, and I remember when we first started going out and we were in W.H. Smith's, and he hates me telling this story, but he's not here, so there you go. Anyway, I was in, we were in W.H. Smith's and, um, and they had, like, I was at the magazine aisle, and they had two magazines, one called Black Essence and one called Ebony. So they're the only magazines kind of for black women like me, and they were down in a corner somewhere at the bottom of a shelf. And I remember Neil saying to me, um, I, was, I picked one up and I started reading through it, and Neil said, he said, well, why have we got magazines like that? You don't see magazines for white people like that. And I said, Neil, what do you call these acres? And, he, I, and it was funny because I saw him looking, and every other magazine had a white face on the front. But he hadn't seen it. 
And it was funny, and it was so funny because I was looking at him thinking, is he serious? And then I realised he was. He just didn't see them as magazines for white people because they had white, um, white faces on them. And I thought, these are the only two. Yet he thinks, well, how come we need those? And it was really strange. So it's kind of like one of those things where I thought, oh, that's interesting. He just didn't see it. And that's why, again, that was an inspiration for writing Noughts and Crosses, where it's things like um, Sefi realised, when, when one of the girls, Shania, when in, for those who've read the book, we already know this, but they, it's the first time in Sefi's school they've let Noughts in. And four noughts have passed the exam and got in, and there's a big kind of protest, and people saying, we don't want noughts in this school. And one of them gets injured, and the next day, she's got a great big brown plaster on her forehead. And, um, and then, she, and then Sefi goes, oh, so that plaster stands out. And then Shania says, well, they don't make plasters for noughts, they only make them for crosses. And it's the first time that Sefi's thought about the fact that, yeah, plasters are dark brown, they're not pink. And that was just something I put in there because plasters are pink, they're not dark brown. And, um, you know, and it's one of these things where a plaster is supposed to make your, a cut more discreet. But on my skin, the actual cut is more discreet because a plas pink plaster is going to stand out. And, um, and it's those kind of little things that I wanted to put in that as a majority you might not see. But as the, uh, as the majority you won't see, but as the minority you'll be very aware of. And so it was, it's not about such the big thi bigger things as such, it's about the little things. And in fact, it was only two, two, three months ago, someone got in touch with me and said um, she started up a company to market um, plasters for people of colour. And she sent me a sample and there was actually, you know, dark brown plaster. So we're getting there, we're getting there. So, you know, but it's, and again, you know, someone asked me about sort of my experiences in the books and things, and, uh, you know, where I got the inspiration from. And there's a scene in Noughts and Crosses where Toby is travelling with Sefi and he's travelling in first class and the ticket inspectors come on and they give him a really hard time. And that was based on something that happened to me. The first time I went on the first class carriage, I saved up my money and I got into, I went traveling somewhere or another, I can't even remember where, on the first class, um, in the first class carriage. And two ticket inspectors came on and they accused me of stealing the ticket and they gave me a hot, really rotten time. And again, so that scene went in the book. So that's why I love writing, you see, because I get my own back on all these people. So, you know, and I kind of, I kind of um, incorporate them into my stories. So I change them sufficiently so they don't recognise themselves. But, you know, that was based on something that actually happened. And the, again, I was at the Oxford Literary Festival earlier this year. And I was travelling up in first class. And uh, we stopped, the train was diverted and it stopped at Reading. And this guy came out of a staff, we said staff only door, and he came out of it and he stood there like, like he wanted to stretch his legs. And the first class carriage was directly opposite him. And he looked at me and I looked at him and he came straight on the train and he said, can I see your ticket please? I thought, okay. So I showed him my ticket and he looked me up and down and he looked at the ticket and he did a little squiggle on the ticket and gave it back to me and then he went straight off the train. And the first class had loads of people in it but he just wanted to see my ticket. And that was this year. So there you go. Anyway, more, that's so depressing. Let's, I have another question. But you know, but this is the thing. I, I mean, I, I, I did want to kind of just highlight that these things go on. And these things, you know, are, and I, but I wanted to do it within the relationship of Callum and Sefi and Toby and Callie Rose and so on, and tell it within the context of that story and tell their story. And just to, you know, highlight the fact that these things do go on. But that said, I mean, um, you know, people say, oh, God, you must be really a serious, you know, person. I, and, you know, I, I do like a laugh, I promise you. And, 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 I, and, you know, I'm working on my 59th book now. So they're not all kind of, like, serious topics. Some of just, you know, as I said, thrillers and funny stories and whatever. But 
There you go. Anyway, more questions? Mm -hmm. Do you think you'll write another book in the Knots and Crosses series? You know, I always get asked that. <laughs> um, well, I said, I, after Checkmate, I said there wasn't going to be any more. And then Toby started whispering in my ear and wouldn't leave me alone. And, um, and then Double Cross was born. I have to say, I have no plans to write another one. And none of the characters from that world are whispering in my ear. So at the moment, no. Uh, for me, I think it's finished. I really think it's finished. And I'd have to have, feel I had a really, really, really strong story to kind of go back to that world. I want to write other things. And I think, I, you know, and when I first wrote Noughts and Crosses, to be honest, I thought it was going to be one book. And I, thought, and I knew what my story art was going to be. I knew it wanted it to be about Callum and Sefi and their daughter. And I thought I'd fit it all in one book. And then I got to page 400 and whatever in Noughts and Crosses. And Callie Rose had only just been born. And then I thought, oh, I think this is going to be two books. And then I wrote Knife Edge and I got to page 300 and whatever. And she was only a year old. And I thought, I think this is going to be three books. But I thought, I'm going to finish at three books. But as you know, then Toby started whispering in my ear. So it became four. But I really do think that's the end of it. So I'm quite right at the back there. Did all the rejections from publishers like make it hard to keep writing or did it kind of spur you on to show the others that you could get, get books published? Um, I'm I'd be lying if I said that I didn't get depressed about it. I did. And around my 50th or 55th rejection letter, they were, I came about that close to giving up. Because I thought to myself, if all these people are saying no, maybe I really can't write. But then I... I made a deal with myself because I really, really, really wanted to be a writer. And I made a deal with myself that I would wait till I got my thousandth rejection letter <laughs> and, and then I would have a serious, serious think about it. If I st had, still hadn't been published by the time I got my thousandth one, then I'd have a sit down and think about it was writing really for me. But luckily I only got to 82, so there you go. <laughs> Any more questions? Over there? Are any of your characters based on people you know? No, nope. and for the simple reason I don't want to get sued. So, <laughs> so no. In fact, when before when people said, "Are you in any of your books?" I'd always say, um, "No," because I'm certainly not going to write about myself or anybody else I know. But I think of all the characters I've written, the character whose personality is probably closest to my own is Callum's from Noughts and Crosses. And uh, but I don't write about people I know. I might. Some things are inspired by certain people, but I wouldn't write about anyone because I don't want to get sued. And in fact, I made a mistake of, um, in Noughts and Crosses, I used the name of a good friend of mine, and her name's quite unusual. And uh, the book came out, and she wrote me a letter. She didn't even phone me. She wrote me a letter, and she said, Dear Mallory, if this is what you thought of me, you should have had the guts to say so to my face. And it was a two-page letter about how she thought we were friends and how could I do that to her and so on and I was reading it and at first I thought she was winding me up I thought was she having a laugh and then I realized she was serious and I phoned her up and I said have you lost your mind I said I just use your name because I love your name and um and then she said my I've read it and I think you're talking about me I said of course I'm not talking about you you're nothing like the character but it affected our friendship because she was convinced that I'd been writing about her and took some convincing that I wasn't. And I got really upset with her for not even giving me the benefit of the doubt. She didn't even phone me and ask me if I'd been writing about her. She just assumed I was. 
and it did affect our friendship for a while. So I would never, ever write about anyone I know. Ever. Ever. <laughs> Behind you. What's your favourite book of the Knots and Crosses series? Oh gosh, that's a hard one. Because I enjoyed them all when I'm writing them. Um, I think, though, it would have to be out of Noughts and Crosses or Double Cross. And I don't know. Maybe Noughts and Crosses because it was the first one. And I kind of, it was, a, it, was, it was a hard book to write because it was a painful book to write. And it, I, it brought up a lot of memories and things that were kind of painful to put down on paper, but I felt I had to do it. So if maybe from that point of view, the, the most satisfying one as such was Noughts and Crosses because it was the most painful and the most challenging. But I, I must admit, I do like Toby from Double Cross, and I like kind of his story and the whole fact that he's going to, after the people who he feels are responsible for Callie Rose getting shot because he's, he really loves her. So I, um, I kind of like that as well. And also, you see, Toby reminds me of my hubby a bit because there's a bit in there that's taken directly from a conversation with my hubby where... Um, I, every time I say, do you fancy going to see such and such a film? And they'll go, what's it about? And I say, and if I say it's a social drama, it's like, he's at the door. Because he, he doesn't want to watch any romances or social dramas or whatever. He hates them. And so it's kind of that bit in the book um, is just based directly on him. And Toby does remind me a bit of Neil. Because Neil is like, he's the, mo one, he's the most loving guy I've ever met. And every day he tells me he loves me, but he hasn't got a romantic bone in his body. And he's like, <laughs> and, he, and he's, he's really practical and all the rest of it. So it's a really strange combination. And he, and he, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't wonder why, he, he keeps wondering why um, I'm so hung up on anniversaries, our wedding anniversary and stuff, because it's like, it's another day, what's the big deal? But I say, but it means something to me. So, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing. But he's, he just really reminds me of Toby. So, you know, maybe Toby's based on him a bit. So, there you go. Oh, I'm, I'm only, only saying that because he's not here, but there you are. So, anyway, any more questions? Is it difficult to write about like deaths of the characters? Because I don't really want to ruin it, but um, in the first book, it's like it, it is, and especially especially in the first book because I kind of got so attached to like, the character who died at the end, and um, and it was really strange because I was writing it and I was in tears, and it was really bizarre. That's never happened to me before, but I was at, in actual tears when I was writing. It. I was thinking, oh no, and then I just thought. And then for one brief split second, I thought, shall I change the ending? And I thought, no, because this, this is the only ending for the book. And, um, and so I didn't change it. But the, uh, writing that end did upset me. And in Knife Edge, um, there's a scene between Jude and this other woman, Cara. And writing that sort of sent a chill down my spine, and that kind of upset me. But, but that said, I, th I think, in a way, I think that's a good thing. Because I think if I'm feeling it as I'm writing it, I hope people will feel it as they read it. But it does, it does upset me, because I get very attached to certain characters, and then I think, you're so mean, because you put them through all sorts. But there you go. So, but that's, you know, that's the story in my head. So, any more questions? Over here? Sorry, I'm making you work. <laughs> what made you go from the big national drama in the first three to like the smaller community one in the last one? Because I, it was an, an, a new generation. I wanted to... Um, I wanted to kind of bring it down so it was a bit more specific. And I think the gang thing, actually, is quite a big part of a number of people's lives. And I think, 
you know, if you live somewhere where you're lucky, where, where that doesn't affect you, I think if we don't tackle this problem now, sooner or later it will. And I wanted to do it so that it's kind of more of an everyday thing rather than a societal thing. And it is about kind of, it's very, it's very, very easy to get caught up in this kind of gang culture. If your friends are doing it, it's kind of, well, it's very hard to stay out of it. And this whole idea of this kind of postcode nonsense going on, especially in London, where if you're from a particular postcode, you're not supposed to go into another postcode because you've got gangs in the various different ones. And, and if you're seen as, and it's called slipping, and if you, if you do venture into someone else's postcode, you could end up being knifed. And I just think it's kind of shocking, and that's what I wanted to write about. And so it is about, but I wanted to talk about levels of gang violence. So it's just it's from Dan, um, Toby getting involved in this world through his friend Dan, right up to kind of like serious organised crime, which is what Macaulay's into, and the Dowd family, and um, and Toby just feeling he's going to do something about it. He's going to stop them. But of course, you know, he thinks he's going to go in and come out the other end and be unscathed, and it never works that way. That that's why. Do you think the gang violence is worse than like the higher up national thing then? I think, I don't, I don't think it's a question of worse. I think um, they're each as bad as each other, but I do think, you know, racism does kill people, it does demoralize people, it does make people angry, it does turn people into fundamentalists and so forth. Um, you know, I, I used to, when I was in computing, I used to work. Um, in the city, and that was around the time the IRA were bombing everything in sight on the mainland, and it was frightening. And I went into work, and my mum used to freak, and she said, can't you find a job around here, you know, locally? And it was like, um, and you never knew from one day to the next whether you were going to kind of, whether an IRA, you were going to get caught in an IRA bomb. So it, it was quite frightening, but you have to get on with it. But the street thing, I think, is also something where I think, you know, I'm, my daughter, when my daughter goes to school, I think, oh, God, you know, just make sure you're safe and you keep your wits about you and don't get caught in it. And, and thank God i got a teenage girl, because if I had a teenage boy, I'd be freaking. Because I, I think if you've got a teenage boy, you're thinking, oh, my God, and if they, if, who are they hanging out with and what company are they keeping and so forth, that old kind of motherly thing. But I think it would be, it, I think it's something that needs to be addressed. So I don't think it's a question of one is worse or better than the other. I think, I think they're both bad and they both need to be tackled, basically. Any more questions at the front here? If you could change anything from your Nuts and Crosses books, would you change anything? Oh, God, yeah. I would love to go back and rewrite every single book I've ever written, actually. I mean, that's why, to be honest, when they're published, I read them once to make sure there's no typing errors in them, and then I never read them all the way through again. Because I just sit there going, oh, I should have changed that. And oh, my God, that sucks. And oh, no, I don't like that. And so I just get really frustrated. So, yeah, there's heaps I would change. But, you know, with that said, it's out there. And I hopefully um, I've, I'll learn from my mistakes. And with the next book, with each book, hopefully, hopefully I'll, uh, it means my writing will get better. But, yeah, there are some things I would change. And I think also because I didn't plan it as a trilogy, I'm not quite sure why I would follow the format that they're in at the moment if I was planning it out as a trilogy now. I mean, now I know there's four books now, but um, it kind of grew organically almost. It wasn't like I planned it to be a trilogy. So I would love to go back. If I could do that, I would go back and maybe change the order in which things happened. And, and you know, maybe, I don't know. I, I think there's a lot of things I would change, but I don't like to think about it because I think you can't go back and change them. They're out there. So on to the next thing. So. Any more questions? Mm -hmm. 
Who's your favourite character out of all of the series? My favourite character? Uh, I think it would be out of... I think, well, see, I like all four of the major characters, that's the trouble. Um, I don't know, I think probably out of Callum and Toby, probably Toby, actually. Probably Toby. I like the way he kind of decides he's going to get things done and gets on with it. Mind you, you know, Callum was a bit like that as well, but I think Toby of all of them. Any more questions? At the back there? Are you writing any books right now? I am. I'm writing a book at the moment called Boys Don't Cry and that's all you're getting out of me. Because <laughs> I don't like talking about the books I'm currently working on and um, I'm kind of a bit superstitious about that. So yeah, that's what it's called. Boys Don't Cry, but that's it. That's all you're getting. <laughs> but I'm hopefully it'll be out, um, I'm hoping it'll be out sort of next autumn. As soon as I finish it. <laughs> any more questions? I think there was another one at the back there. Um, I know Knots and Crosses is kind of set in a parallel world. Would you ever write anything about your own childhood? Uh, you mean write an autobiography or something? Yeah. A tri oh, hell no. <laughs> no. No, I'm not interested in writing about myself. I wouldn't, I mean, I might use things that have happened to me, but I certainly wouldn't want to write an autobiography because I've been there, done that. I want to write about something new and fresh and different. So no, I wouldn't write about myself. Oh, God, no. <laughs> no, oh, no, no, no. That's going to give me nightmares now, that thought. Um, okay, go there. How long does it usually take you to write a book? Um, it depends. I mean, if I'm writing a picture book, I, I wrote a book called I Want to Cuddle, and that took me two weeks, you know, a week and a half, two weeks. Um, Double Cross took me 18 months. Noughts and Crosses took me a year. A knife Edge took me 18 months and Checkmate took me two years. So, you know, that, so people say, oh, you're so prolific and you've written a lot. Uh, not recently. <laughs> it's kind of one book every 18 months at the moment, and, and, or every year is 18 months. So um, that's how long they usually take. If, it's a, if I'm writing a novel like this, it will take at least a year. So that, which is why when my sister phoned me up and to slag me off and, about Knife Edge, and when's the next one coming out? I said, I'm working on it, I'm working on it. Because it, it took her, I think, sort of two days to read it but it takes me at least a year to write them so do you write yeah. every day i do i try and write every day yeah i ha kind of have a set routine so as soon as my daughter's at school i sit down at the computer and you know it's fun. And I, as i said it's kind of one of these ironic things where i kind of gave up computing because i didn't want to be staring at a computer screen all day so <laughs> what do i do all day i stare at a computer screen but there you go any more questions there's one there Um, in your book, The Stuff of Nightmares, like, what inspired the different nightmares and the sort of each character's like, fears? Uh, okay, well, I'll tell you how that came about. When I was getting all those rejection letters, uh, well, what used to happen is I'd go to my job, I'd come home, have my dinner, and then I'd start writing. And I'd work until about 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning, and then next day go to work and do the, do the whole thing over and over again. And after about a week, I knew I had found the thing I wanted to do with the rest of my life. I wanted to write, but I couldn't afford to give up my job because we had bills to pay. So um, it got to the stage where I grew to really hate my job. 
and I just wanted to stay at home and write, but I couldn't afford it. And um, it started to have an effect on me in that I started to have really, really bad nightmares. Kind of nightmares where I'd wake up shivering and shaking and in a cold sweat. And after about, and this was every night, and after about the third night of this, I started sleeping with a notepad and pen by my bed. So every time I woke up from a nightmare, I'd write down what the nightmare was, and I thought, one day I'm going to do something with these. And, um, and I, the, the book features 13 nightmares, and nine of them are actually based on nightmares I had. Like, the one, there's one in the book about uh, a girl who's caught in acid rain. Well, that was actually from a dream I had where um, I was in a forest and I was all by myself, and it started to rain, it started to drizzle, but it was acid rain, it was real acid rain. So every time a drop touched my black leather jacket, which I've still got, um, it sort of burnt a, a hole through my leather jacket. And every time a, a drop touched my skin, it felt like someone was stabbing me with a needle. And, um, and I, in this dream, I knew I had to find shelter fast. And up ahead in the distance, I saw a light. So I started legging, to, legging it towards the light. And then it was, and, and as I got through the trees, there was this sort of picture book house in, in the clearing. And it was a, a door in the middle and windows on either side of the door. And this bright, warm light flooding out of the windows. And uh, I remember in the dream thinking, oh, thank God for that, thank God for that. And I ran up to the door and I started banging on the door going, let me in, let me in, it's starting to rain. And all these people came to the windows and they stood there and they watched me. And no one would let me in. And I was trying the door, but the door was locked. And the rain was getting heavier and heavier. And I remember in the dream just wiping my hand across my face because my face was burning and flakes of my skin coming off in the palm of my hand. And, and I was just banging on the door going, please, please let me in. And I'm pleading with these people at these bay windows. And they just stood there. And I remember being in such pain that I sank to my knees and I thought, these people are just going to let me die out here. And I thought, I don't like this dream. And I forced myself to wake up. But I wrote it down and that's one of the dreams that's uh, in, in, in a st the stuff of nightmares. But actually looking back, I think I know what that dream meant. Because it was around the time I was getting all those rejection letters. And I think that the computing was the acid rain, the forest and the acid rain, and publishing with the, the bright yellow light. And it was, was this, this house, but nobody would let me in because they kept sending me rejection letters. So I think that's what it meant. Looking back on it, I'm sure that's what it meant. But um, it's one of those things where it was so frightening when I was kind of having it that I thought, oh my God. But as I said, I, I decided one day I'm going to do something with all these nightmares. And that's how the stuff of nightmares was born. It's about a boy called Kyle. and. Um, He's in a train crash and death is stalking him and the only way to get away from death is to leap into the nightmares of his friends. So, there you go. Um, oh, I think um, we yeah. have to finish now. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for, but thank you for a fantastic hour, Mally. Well, thank you pleasure. for coming and thank you for all your questions. Mally will be signing books in the children's tent, but if you could let us leave first before you arrive, that would be great. If we just give another round of applause. Thank you. <laughs> great.